This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Michael Huth. Professor Huth is the co-founder and chief research officer of Zane. He teaches at Imperial College London, where he is on the faculty of the Department of Engineering, and he serves as the head of the Department of Computing. His research focuses on cybersecurity, cryptography, mathematical modeling, as well as security and privacy in machine learning with an expertise in trust and policy. He served as the technical lead of the Harnessing Economic Value theme at the Petrus IoT Cybersecurity Research Hub in the UK. He holds associations with the Center for Cryptocurrency Research and Engineering, the Center for Smart Connected Futures, the Engineering Secure Software Systems Association, the Immunopathology Network, and the Quantitative Analysis and Decision Science section. In 2017, he founded Zane along with his co-founders Leif Nissen Lindbeck and Felix Hammond as a privacy-first search engine that enables users to gain back control over algorithms and data-invasive practices. Hi, Michael. Hi, Deb. So, Michael, today I want to talk to you primarily about Zane, the landmark news search and news reader platform you developed based on principles of privacy and user data protection. But before I do, I thought I'd ask you how you got to Zane as an academic with an incredibly impressive background in the academy. I'm going to give just the shortest of bios for you on the record because your bio and your work is so prolific. You're on the engineering faculty and you serve as the head of the Department of Computing at Imperial College London with a research expertise in trust, especially in policy around trust. A formidable list of publications and associations appear next to your name, including uh, an association with the Center for Cryptocurrency Research and Engineering, an association with the Center for Smart Connected Futures, uh, an association with the Engineering Secure Software Systems, and the Immuno pathology network and the quantitative analysis and decision science section, just to name a few. What, if anything, were you seeing or doing as an academic that led you to want to develop Zane? Thanks, Deb. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I think as a person, you know, I think I've always been adventurous, you know, so that's also kind of reflected in the fact that I went to the U.S. to do a PhD, you know, at Tulane and postdocs in, in various countries. And, and also academically, you know, I always delved into new subject areas and tried to see connections and so on. So when Leif kind of approached me, you know, a while back, uh, wanting to do a PhD with me, I was quite intrigued, you know, about what he wanted to do. And, you know, this vision of a, a decentralized network that does AI where people have more control and autonomy in these open systems seemed very appealing to me. And so, you know, during this uh, PhD relationship, you know, which really are sort of relationships in a way, you know, you get to know people very well and you have to sort of, you know, see that they progress and learn from them as, as well as as professor. I think, you know, I just got more and more interested in this kind of vision and it progressively led to the insight that maybe I should actually do something with him. And he was always keen on forming a company that would map out this kind of vision. And so when the time was right, I, I just did it. What is Zane and how would you describe it 
to somebody who hasn't used it. Remember, our platform is audio, not visual. So I'm wondering if you could just give us a brief description of the platform and also kind of give us a visual for what it looks like if you you use it. Yeah, uh, certainly. Zane as an app is really something where users can generate a new stream uh, that comes along as a stream of cards. You know, so they can kind of look at the next story that they see, they see a headline, they might see an image in the background, and then either they're interested in it, so they open it up, or they're not. They can also like and dislike, sort of like Tinder style. Uh, and so to us, the visual appeal is very important, which is, of course, quite hard to portray in, in the podcast. But also, you know, it's uh, it's a personalized product. So although the, the news comes from various APIs, what we do is we have AI sitting within the app uh, with the user that actually learns the user's interests over time and then generates a new stream that will only appear in exactly that version with that particular user. What problem were you trying to solve when you started out? Because I mean, there, there are similar products out there. I'm sure that our listeners use some form of a, a news feed. I'm sure that they're familiar with the kinds of searches that uh, Zane provides. So was there a problem that you were seeing that led you to want to do something different? Yeah, I mean, that's a very valid question You know, in, in, in the business domain. How do we differentiate ourselves here? I think early on, I mean, we came a bit also from the search engine paradigm in general, you know, which is actually very related here. So, you know, trying to re-rank news items that come in from various APIs of providers is technically a very similar problem to actually re-ranking web pages, you know, when people enter certain kind of um, key streams. But for us, it was very important to develop something where the privacy of the users is actually built in from the ground up. And that's not true for most uh, other providers, you know, where they basically know very well which articles people read for how long and so on. And then they can uh, take that kind of knowledge to build models of user behavior and correlate that with other things. I mean, some companies then also have access to their browser history, their shopping history, location history, and so on and so forth. So, you know, this gives them a, a very dense map of what a user thinks and, and, and you know what sort of things they do, and really, you know, in a sense, it it makes them then create models where they can predict what people do, but also nudge what people do. Yeah, and that's actually something that we don't do at all. So in our app, we construct these AI models; they're integrated in the app, but we actually have no idea what a user does within this app. You know, we have no means of knowing which news stories they read, uh, or even when the AI learns on their devices, we have no knowledge of how that learning process actually works. We just provide the framework for this to work on the user's devices. So in a sense, it really goes back to this original vision of the company to build decentralized kind of networks, you know, where people are much more in control over what they they do in, in these open systems. And I think that probably listeners are uh, already intuitively understanding why that would be important. But why is it important for users to have control over what they do? Why is it important to not collect data, to not track what users are doing on the platform? What, what is, is there an ethical issue or a moral issue at stake here? Well, I mean, to me, it's probably a moral issue. And I think, you know, I think it was a Harvard scholar, so Shohana Zuboff, and she wrote this book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future and the New Frontier of Power. You know, it's maybe politically sort of uh, not quite neutral, but but even if we take that away, 
I think it, it paints a picture of how technology has now changed as a, as a platform technology so that those companies have exceedingly more and more power. You know, so it's not just about gathering data that are local experiences, you know, what you might read in that particular morning. It's really just the totality of all the data that you actually generate in your daily interactions with digital artifacts or just walking through other spaces where devices are kind of uh, you're recording what you do. And, you know, the more these data are actually pulled together, the more these companies or government entities or whoever actually find out about you. And so they often might know more about you than some of your uh, most intimate friends, you know, and so that I think is a moral issue. Yeah, we've had a lot of episodes on the show that talk about issues uh, undergirding privacy and the ways that these models that garner data, collect data, assess that data, and then are able to nudge our behavior in certain directions can turn uh, invasive and can turn parasitic and then uh, go horribly wrong in certain instances where, for example, they nudge behavior toward extremism. We just finished um, in the United States the January 6th hearing, so this is very much on my mind, the ways in which uh, certain news feeders or certain social media platforms, certain searches can uh, develop certain extremist tendencies uh, that can become catastrophic. So I'm quite aware of the importance of privacy on an ethical level. What I'm interested in from, from your perspective is what it's like to start a company, presumably a company that's ultimately uh, intended to generate profit on the basis of these ethical principles. And Zane to me is particularly interesting as a company because it's grounded in these kinds of ethical principles, because the ethical principle of privacy was something that you have as a mobilizing force in the creation of the product itself, not just something that you wanted to protect as you were developing a product, but something that was built into the idea of the product and the reason for uh, creating that product itself. In my research and analysis of how products and companies can cultivate ethical contexts and outcomes, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that ethics can't be something that's tacked on at the end of a product's development or a company's development as a kind of afterthought or kind of like a prosthetic, but rather that ethics is something that has to be built in at the foundations, developed mindfully, intentionally, and with precision and explanation at the very onset of the development of everything. And Zane takes that, I think, a step further in that it's not just, as I said, the thing that you wanted to protect or an ethical consideration in the development of a secondary product uh, idea, ideation and development, but, but rather as a reason for creating a new product. So I'm really curious from you, did you have ethical conversations early on? What were those conversations like? Where did you draw your ethical principles from? And, and what were the issues or concepts that the development of this product was pivoted around? Yeah, thanks, uh, Deb. I mean, to us, uh, you know, it was always a, sort of a, a value-driven a story and really from from the outset you know this idea of decentralized systems which sort of shakes maybe the uh, established power structures you know to say it should actually be the end users who can self-organize themselves and decide what to do you know and in these kinds of systems i suppose blockchain is maybe kind of a good example you know it, it was trying not just to innovate and disrupt financial services but also to give end users much more control and autonomy over what they do in this space. So I think this was always something that we 
we had uh, you know on our map uh, from from the outset, but also how we actually defined you know our own sort of internal company values, you know how we treat teams, you know how we want to sort of nurture a culture of working together. Uh, so for example, we have Fridays now off work, so we have a four four day work week, you know because we think this is just a more sustainable way also for us because we you know, solve very hard engineering problems to really you know be able to sustain that kind of effort of, of deep tech innovation by not working five or five days a week. And sometimes the teams also go out in Berlin and you know, partake in demonstrations around climate change and things like that. So, you know, it really is not just, as you say, something that's bolted on and, and, and part of the PR. We really, you know, see ourselves as people who want to also change the world. And, you know, it's not really the, you know, the immediate dream of becoming a, a huge company, you know, that's com- commercially super successful. Clearly, we want success, right? Also commercially. Uh, but I think these two things have to come uh, together and you have to balance balance these things off. So for us, I think privacy uh, was, of course, also maybe in the German-speaking world where the company was founded and operates mostly uh, initially. Privacy is a very important part uh, of the culture and also of the legal status. So there's something called informational self-determination in the German law, which basically means that uh, citizens, individuals have a right to determine what happens with their information, who gets it. And so they basically are at the center of the control and of the release of information. And that's enshrined in, in German law. And it's uh, perhaps even a stronger notion than, say, the uh, uh, European GDPR or the uh, California two privacy laws that, uh, that have now been passed. In contrast to the United States, that upholds this idea of privacy and how you think that that has led uh, certain developments, both in terms of regulation, restriction, and also product developments in Europe, or maybe even Germany specifically, that we haven't seen in the United States. I mean, I would say that in Germany, it is often more sort of a a regulatory thing. You know, in companies, there's a, a lot of consciousness around data protection for a long, long time, which I think in the US has only sort of entered the mainstream consciousness uh, fairly recently, right? So, uh, but also, I mean, I think culturally, I think there's common law in certainly in the UK and I think also in parts of the US where people can actually just enter a home, I think certainly in England, if it's unlocked, yeah? So there are certain kind of interesting twists in a common understanding of what's acceptable and what's not. Uh, Or for example, in Portugal or Spain, if you have a home, a property, and you don't live on it for a certain time, others become almost entitled to go in there and use that. Yeah? So, so there's quite a disparity of perception culturally of what privacy or even right to property means. So I should say the word privacy, interestingly enough, doesn't feature in the German constitution, just like in the United States. You know, It doesn't show up in the, in the constitution, the Bill of Rights, or the amendments. But what does show up in the German constitution is a right, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, to be left alone. I mean, your your private home is kind of a sanctuary, you know, and that is protected by by the constitution. And it's interesting if you, for example, go to Rose versus Wade, you know, the, the actual decision and how it was kind of reasoned was basically to say, we think of privacy, I mean, it has different sorts of meanings, but one of them is basically to have the right to be left alone at home to ponder a difficult decision and to make that. And so I think this is something that's very much something that Germans in their cultural frame understand very well and that they cherish. 
I, I ask this question, I press on the term itself, um, partly because I think it's really interesting to think about the relationship between, on the one hand, a product's ideation and development, and on the other hand, its socio-cultural context, and how in the context of uh, global distribution of products, these products might come into conflict with the different cultural norms into which they uh, are uh, diffused and, and distributed and then used by people. But also because Zane actually coined a new term around privacy. You and Leith, who you mentioned earlier, your co-founder, proposed that new term, privacism, to describe, and I'm going to quote you here, a broad philosophy and social movement regarding concerns for privacy protection of individuals, particularly in the context of fighting for the improvement of businesses and government's practices in the digital age. Your website goes on to describe the philosophy in the following terms. In a sense, privacism is claiming one's own individual rights, but it goes beyond that. Privacists fight for everyone else's privacy rights too. It focuses on advocating for the privacy of users as opposed to technical evolution or even the collective interests of governments. Privacism isn't to be confused with privatism, which is about private ownership. Instead, it's an ideology built on the foundation that privacy is a basic human right. This was really interesting to me because, as you point out in the website, this is true not only in a context of German culture, but also in a kind of international understanding around human rights. You point out that the right to privacy as a human right is explicitly enumerated by the United Nations. What's the connection between our current te technologies and the growth of the privacism movement? I know that you implicate AI as dramatically shifting the terms of privacy. Can you explicate that link for us? Uh, I can, uh, Deb. Thanks for that. I mean, one way of illustrating this is, again, going back to web searches. I think historically they started out as you know, algorithmic uh, means of re-ranking certain kinds of pages in some sort of graph structure, mathematically speaking, right? And this worked very well initially. But after a while, you know, as the web grew larger and larger, these kinds of techniques no longer worked. So that's basically where AI came in to try and help that. And the way it did that was, again, just by understanding users and their digital footprint and how that would relate to the actual huge web graph and how they interacted. And so this, I think, really led to an asymmetry of information and maybe also an asymmetry of power here, you know, where the companies that offered and developed and honed and refined this web technology basically had a key advantage. You know, they had access to vast human resources to improve their understanding of, of, of how this works. And then we come back to this discussion you know, that we kind of touched on already with the nudging capabilities and so on and so forth. But I think what we really want is something where users not only have rights, and I think this is one of the issues with regulation. You know, if you look at even the, uh, the two California acts and so on, I mean, they're very laudable uh, and welcome ventures on the legal side. But the actual experience of a user day to day in a complex digital landscape is very different. So if you think, for example, of GDPR, how that led to an inflation of cookie consent mechanisms that pop up left and right, you know, when you go out on the internet, it is actually infeasible or unreasonable for any user to try and judge any of those pop-ups, you know, what that might mean for their own life. Should they click on this versus that, you know, what are the options? And then the UI is often done in a clever way where you are actually nudged into clicking a certain combination, for example. So, you know, this is a 
almost an issue of psychological scaling. You, you cannot expect users to interact with all these regulatory cross checkpoints uh, because it's actually impairing our own experience and the potential that the, the digital realm has. And so I think this is a, a real issue here in privacyism. And uh, I think another one, if I look forward, is you know if you look at companies that are investing heavily in metaverses, this is going to be the new frontier where uh, these things are going to be played out also in terms of, of rights. I mean, if I imagine myself in a, in a metaverse embedded in there, I have a sense of autonomy. You know, I can maybe if it's a city, I can move down these streets. I might even be able to buy property and so on. But it is a world that in its own foundations, I absolutely do not control. Yeah, so even if you think of a browser like Brave, which I'm using right now, you know, to do the podcast, uh, I can block ads in this. Yeah, uh, but in the metaverse, I will not be able to do that. Yeah, because it's basically a universe that some companies have more or less created with all sorts of you know legitimate business interests in mind. And so, I think this uh, sort of rings back to you know, it's not just a, a right to privacy or related rights. It's also a much more fundamental question of the freedom of individuals and their autonomy and whether they live in environments where they can exercise their autonomy in a dignified and effective manner. And as you point out, that autonomy is also, you know, how, how do you balance out the respect for privacy and the option of privacy with, for example, user experience? It's not feasible to click all of the accept cookies, do not accept cookies, go through a user term agreement lists uh, over and over and over again. I mean, mm. you know, uh, Apple presumably cares about my privacy enough to send me a 20 page list every single time I buy one of their products of all of the different ways that I can select or opt out from certain privacy uh, options. Of course, uh, if I were to do this throughout my daily business, I would have no time to do anything else except for read through these terms and conditions lists. That's right. So there, there's on the one hand, the following regulations dimension, and then there's the other dimension of what's practical in terms of requesting for consent and garnering consent in terms of digital literacy and in terms of providing different levels of friction to uh, use. And then there's the question of actual protection of privacy. So how do you think about the terrain of all of these uh, different dimensions of what it means to consent and to ask for consent for, for privacy uh, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, um, to allow people to use products in ways that are you know, actually feasible and actually beneficial and without the kinds of frictions that would make them impossible or deeply aggravating to use? Yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, question, but also a complex one. Uh, maybe I can uh, sort of take an example. I think there is a lot of good use and you know, justification for having you know, consent mechanisms, certainly in lots of professional services. I mean, let me maybe mention fundraising, right? So when you have databases of potential donors, and then some of them are actually blocked, you know, for very legitimate reasons, maybe, you know, someone who had a past relationship with the company now has maybe, say, dementia or something like that. And so it would be completely unethical, you know, to solicit money from that individual. And so any fundraiser, would have to very much honor you know what's found in those kinds of databases for example um but when it comes to you know more edge computing or sort of digital events that happen in more public spaces uh, i don't really see a need even 
to, to generate and collect data in a manner that privacy issues could actually arise in the first place. So this is really this idea of learning even on the edge. You know, if you learn on a user's smartphone or if you have sensors in a certain street and those sensors locally learn you know, what traffic behavior is, you don't have to get any personal links necessarily to the individuals who walk through there. And you don't have to aggregate all that information at province scale, for example. Yeah, it, it, it suffices if you understand what's happening in those particular streets. So that's just another example of where architectural decisions can actually design out a lot of those issues. You could see this actually in cybersecurity historically, you know, where, as you were saying, there was often, often an afterthought, and that's actually exactly what happened in security. You know, the IT systems were first built when security was not even on the horizon. And then when uh, the internet, you know, all these servers were connecting up, the banks and so on, uh, cybersecurity suddenly was a big uh, topic. So it actually did get bolted on, yeah? But now uh, the new products that are built are much more uh, proactive and are trying to build in security. And GDPR actually speaks of privacy by design, yeah? So this is quite an important thing. And and I think we we have to be careful not to have a only technical response to this kind of uh, demand or incentive, yeah, to say, oh, we have a certain, you know, hardware software configuration that's going to be private by design. At the end of the day, these products and the softwares are going to be used in concrete sort of functions. And then there might be function creep, there might be mission creep of these products or services. So we need another uh, sort of dimension of thinking about privacy by design that is actually more in the human realm, you know, and not at the level of the technical code that's actually running. And then joining these things up is something that we have to do not just before we deploy, but actually as the products are living, you know, throughout their life cycle. So then here's a high level question. Why is privacy such an important issue anyway? What, from your point of view, are the major ethical issues around privacy, especially in the context of something like a news feed or news reader or a search engine? I mean, there is a debate, of course, sometimes even drawn into the culture wars, I might say, right? So why would you even care about uh, about privacy? Uh, almost, you know, the argument might go, well, if you care about it, you have something to hide. And if you have something to hide, you're probably up to no good, right? So that's that sort of line of reasoning. I mean, I would say that what sort of things you're reading or what you're searching on on the web is often quite sort of personal, you know, going into, say, medical realm or all kinds of sexual identity or, you know, sort of searching for a new employment or whatever it might be. Yeah? So I think we have maybe a right to, and an expectation to others not necessarily finding out about these things before we feel comfortable with in a controlled manner releasing this sort of information. Yeah, and so I think this again comes back to the digital platforms now that are becoming so powerful that they can collect all this type of information. And then, you know, for example, I'm not, I'm not claiming that they might do that, but in principle, they could also pass this on to an insurer. You know, if there was a certain search history going on that might suggest a certain kind of medical issue. So I think, you know, it is important that we can still draw boundaries. And I think one of the main issues I'm actually seeing here is that the notion of public space is evolving in a manner where it seems to really, you know, get more and more traction in what used to be private realms. You know, so if you think of, say, you know, a bedroom, 
in, in a personal home uh, that now has quite a few digital devices in it. And usually a smartphone lies around with a speech assistant actually on. Yeah. And so uh, the speech actually gets recorded or whatever else uh, might take place in that room. You know, people might walk across different sort of rooms at different times. That is actually fairly private information. And I think we maybe have lost thought or actually don't even realize, you know, what sort of potential secrets we're actually revealing just by having all these digital uh, devices enabled. And I think this is one of the, the big questions tomorrow, maybe also, you know, how can we actually develop technology with confidence, a good notion of what a private and a public space is, so that we know, you know, with some reassurance in which sort of space we are moving about at any given time. I think the culture around it, as you rightly put out, is really changing. I mean, yesterday in one of my classes on ethics and technology, um, I asked about whether or not the students in the class cared about whether or not people were tracking them or whether companies were tracking them or whether governments were tracking them. And most of them seem to care. I'm not sure that they care enough to have it actually change or modify their behavior in any significant way. But one of the students pointed out to me that he just assumes that everybody is tracking him wherever he goes. And because of that omnipresence of these tracking systems, um, he just doesn't care anymore. He just assumes that it's the case and that everybody is tracking him and that that, that just leads him, to, I want to say, almost to an attitude of, of defeat and acceptance over it. So, you know, I, I see all sorts of problems with this kind of attitude. I think that anybody who can nudge our behavior one or two degrees to the left or to the right um, can monetize it for their own purpose in ways that might actually interfere with my free will, for example, or my um, own thought process. The idea of being surveilled all the time might limit my ability to not only act in certain ways because I self-police and self-constrain, but also think in certain ways. Because I think that the policing or the constant internalization of that kind of policing can change actual thought processes and, and might limit um, creativity or might limit the ability to not even act of dissent, but even think out of dissent. But on the contrary side, you know, there, there is a sense in which I can understand the student's perspective in that. Okay, so somebody wants to nudge my behavior one degree to the left or one degree to the right. I, I end up spending $5 on a piece of chocolate that I didn't otherwise, wouldn't have otherwise spent or $20 on a pair of shorts that Instagram told me would look good on my particular uh, body type. Okay, so what? <laughs> so <laughs> I want to ask you, so what? <laughs> mm, yeah. I mean, I think these little uh, sort of things, like if I buy a pack of crisps or, you know, which sort of uh, jogging shoes I'm, I'm buying, I'm, I'm kind of with you there. You know, I don't think this is really maybe that big of a deal. But again, you know, I think it has to do more with the totality of your digital interactions, you know, and whether someone can actually collect a wide spectrum of those activities and can correlate them and understand them. And then, you know, when that happens, I think we're not just talking about little nudges. So in fact, you know, you could play this uh, to up to a next level. You could say it isn't just about nudging and using AI to increase the likelihood that you behave in a certain way, but it's actually you know, using this detailed knowledge about you to essentially produce a fulfillment loop, you know, that you almost become like a, a finite automata that they can, you know, sort of configure in a way that it will actually behave in the manner that suits uh, them. I mean, that's a bit of a, 
a sort of uh, utopian description, but but it, it is making that kind of point. Yes, so if you have that seamless way of gathering data, and there are now large companies that also have IoT networks that they offer for clients, you know, at their homes and so on, and these are uh, interconnected with uh, the traditional digital realms. And so that gives essentially those companies a full circle kind of impression of what you actually do in your lives. And uh, I mean, you can only imagine the sort of predictive power this gives uh, to them. And this is just something that I wouldn't feel comfortable about. I mean, I don't mind being nudged into some some good running shoes, you know, and if maybe they're not the perfect ones that I have, but as long as I can run in them, I'm actually perfectly fine, right? But I think this, what I'm just describing there, this full circle thing, is is of a different kind of uh, dimension. Mm -hmm. And the ways that I think, and I get very terrified uh, about these uh, moving things, not in the level of consumerism, which of course I'm also worried about, but also on political levels. I recently heard the term algocracy, rule by algorithm proposed to describe a phenomenon whereby algorithms learn about our political preferences and nudge them one degree or one degree further to the left or to the right. Uh, by left and right in this context, I mean in political terms. And because algorithms will be rewarded when it learns our behavior correctly, uh, nudges more and more toward extremism to the point where these algorithms are actually not only predicting, but cybernetically determining our political mm. futures. And so this is what chills me to the bone. This is what keeps me up at night, this kind of algocracy. But of course, the algocracy is political. I also think that it's economic. I also think that it, it drives our desires, our wishes, our aims, uh, our behaviors. Can you speak at all to how you see the major uh, consequences of this kind of learning behavior that moves our behavior toward extremism? Are there things that you are particularly worried about? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic point to um, highlight. I mean, for Xane, maybe just to bring that uh, back into the frame there, you know, one of the reasons why we're interested in new streams and search streams and so on is that we didn't feel we want to go out on interacting social platforms ourselves. Yes, yeah? So we wanted to make sure we have an environment where people can just consume high quality news at their choice and with their sort of, you know, their control of, oh, do I want to share this link with someone or not, rather than offering a social platform where all sorts of people can suddenly interact in a public space. Yeah, so I think there, it's a very, very difficult thing to do this right. And I have, for example, a, a colleague, can't go into great details there at the moment, but you know, there they use natural language processing techniques to try and detect uh, hate speech or abusive speech in real time, you know, to be able to detect and filter these things before they actually get deployed on a social network for everyone to see. Yeah, so I think there is an opportunity where AI can, in a way, mitigate some of those concerns that this sort of technology brings about in the first place. But I am actually deeply concerned about how our digital technologies, you know, the manner in which they are more and more capable of doing things and the acceleration of this innovation seems to actually challenge uh, established, I mean, historically grown ways of structuring democratic institutions and processes, yeah, elections being one of them that you've mentioned there. And so I think, you know, these uh, election mechanisms have really, you know, taken centuries to take on the sort of shape and form that they have today. And so, you know, this was in a world where 
changes were almost at a glacial kind of pace. Yeah, maybe you know after the Middle Ages, industrial revolutions, it, it was getting a bit faster, but still those things were moving reasonably slowly. And now, you know, I mean, the U.S. is a pioneering place for polling, right? And uh, you know, I mean, all the early work on polling for elections comes comes out of the U.S. Uh, but this was really sort of classical data science with pen and paper at the time, right? And now we had sort of computerized ways of doing that. Uh, but now, as you say, we have very powerful uh, ways of going through, you know, myriads of data and trying to make predictions. And if you then tie this with means of maybe drawing, uh, redrawing election districts, you know, once you've gained this sort of knowledge, hypothetically speaking, yeah, this becomes probably quite a powerful sort of tool, which the founding fathers in the US, uh, for example, could not have imagined, right? And so I think there are many questions here to be asked. And I think there's also, in particular, the young generation uh, is probably well advised, you know, to to engage with these sorts of questions and, and you know, determine are the constitutional sort of frameworks, not just in the US, are they really, you know, still workable and uh, stable enough given all those kinds of tools that we now have at our disposal. And it comes back to this question of how autonomous and do we have a freedom of will, as you were saying, Deb. So this gets me right back to what I think is a, a bit of a sticking point, because I don't think that a company like Facebook or a company like Google started off uh, wanting to or foreseeing that they could change the results of election, even if people who later use their platforms to do so did. I don't think that the company started off doing that. and so. I guess I get to a question here about how these companies are responding to the knowledge that their platforms are being used or their data collection capabilities are being used in certain ways. I'm going to quote your co-founder here, Leaf, again, on ethics and AI, who writes that most organizations who commit to ethical AI typically do so by pledging to adhere to a number of basic principles articulated by academics and researchers over the past 15 years. As a rule, these principles tend to resemble those of bioethics. In an attempt to unify the various set of principles, Luciano Floridi and Josh Cowles published a piece called A Unified Framework of Five Principles for AI in Society. They published this in 2019, distilling and summarizing the various principles into five main areas, beneficence, non-maleficence, autonomy, justice, and explicability. These are lofty and necessary goals, your co-writer writes. They're also so admirable as to make for great PR. Companies like Google, Meta, Intel, Microsoft, and other tech giants have publicly supported projects like the Partnership on Artificial Intelligence to Benefit People and Society. Does this make them ethical companies? Hardly. And beyond the individual companies, we're still living in societies actively undermining ethical AI measures. Until that's addressed, ethical AI will stall as a project. Okay, so I know that these are Leaf's words and not yours, but I'm assuming that based on the work that you do, that you may also share uh, his sentiments. What is it in our societies that actively undermine ethical AI measures? I guess I'm, I'm asking here, um, why don't more companies do what you're trying to do with Zane? What gets in the way? Yeah, great question again. Deb. Uh, I mean, Luciano, for example, Floridi, whom you mentioned, I mean, I, I admire him greatly. And he's a colleague of mine from, from Oxford. And I think that is a, a really good sort of understanding of what some of the philosophically grounded uh, principles would be. So I, I completely agree with that assessment there. I also think that companies like Meta, to be fair, uh, they started out like 
any company having a certain vision and then they went on a journey you know and so then uh, they had uh, certainly other opportunities and you know growth and products kind of morphed into other products and so on you know so i think it's also not fair to say that they should have done something from the outset you know to sort of uh, make sure that this kind of platform doesn't allow for this kind of behavior i think this is a bit of a temporal issue you know because we all had to actually understand as human beings what a digital platform a social network actually is and what sort of behavior might take place on it yeah so so in a way companies like sane now have the advantage of that kind of piece of history and insight and so you know this is maybe now an, a moral appeal to other companies as well you know saying now you actually know you know what these things are and what what can happen there so you should actually design something if you try to do something new and there's quite a few uh, players out there who want to do something new you should really build this differently from from the ground up at the same time these established companies are making considerable investments in house you know to try and develop tech that deals with these problems i mean i've just mentioned you know the ability of using ai to detect and filter out hate speech or or any kind of other speech to do that but there you know the the problem i mean i'm sympathetic to companies like meta there is these are such vast networks here yeah, with billions of users and you know myriads of daily interactions it's very very difficult to get a high degree of reliability of judging whether a particular post should be posted or not yeah and so there will always be false positives and false negatives but maybe from a public goods perspective it's already a huge improvement if those false positive false negative rates are reasonably small and the bulk of the things that we might as you know a general audience uh, think are inappropriate uh, is actually being filtered out so it is more of a public goods uh, discussion perhaps then something you know that's kind of binary right uh, can can you filter everything or, or not so here's the part of the conversation where I get to the really hardball questions because you mentioned the billions of users you didn't mention the billions of dollars and you've mentioned the public good but you didn't mention the fact that these companies have already developed and they've created a marketplace where the value comes from harvesting data and as i mentioned before when i think about data collection employed by some of these tech companies google facebook for example who have invasive privacy practices i generally believe that they're not engaging out of those practices because they're malevolent or bad actors or interested in what i'm doing in my private life because they want to uh, leverage it into ways to sabotage me specifically but rather because the incentive structures around them are for monetizing their work they have to make money they have to pay their employees they have to cover operational costs they have to demonstrate growth to investors they have to turn profit for shareholders so it's not that they're bad actors harvesting data in ways that invade the privacy of their users for no reason or because they're malevolent but rather because they have to make money somehow and this is the way this is the economic structure by which these companies make money um it is through data collection your platform clearly is seeking to increase the autonomy and the agency of its users in a space where the prevailing solutions have simply not delivered well up to now um for example you make a priority to refrain from the kinds of privacy degrading practices that can be seen in monolithic browser solutions like chrome or like safari but you still have to make money right you you have to make enough money to compete 
even if your aim is not to make your founding team billionaires. You still have to turn a profit. A skeptical observer might then wonder how you plan or how you intend or how you foresee making profit from this platform, if not by leveraging personal data practices that your competitors uh, use. Can you share a little bit about how your solution can generate revenue while still preserving privacy by default? Yes, certainly, Deb. Uh, but before I do that, um, let me go back to the earlier part of your question, you know, around the, the, the large companies, the established players, and the sort of, you know, dynamics of capitalism in a sense in which they uh, find themselves. I, I actually think that capitalism is a good thing, you know, so don't, don't also misunderstand uh, Xane there. But I think, you know, there the are some elements in there, uh, particularly around KPIs, quarterly reporting, you know, and having responsibility towards the shareholders, where, you know, you might think, is that good or bad? I actually also think that is a good thing. However, this does raise the question of why do these people actually invest in those companies? Yeah. And many of them maybe invest just because they want to make a good profit and then sell off, you know, as quickly as possible. But there are also uh, people who buy stocks because they believe in a company. And so I think there the KPIs actually become quite interesting. You know, why why would you want to found a company, for example, to purify water, you know, around the planet to make that more cost effective, you know, just as an example. So I think there capitalism has an awful lot to offer. But I think then the 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 KPIs you would formulate would be sort of a bit different, yeah. And also maybe the expectations of shareholders might be a little bit different. It would actually be fascinating to get some data on some of the more recent uh, companies in the environmental space and climate change space, you know, what drives investors to actually uh, buy and sell stock in these spaces. But maybe we'll leave that for another day. Uh, but just coming back to uh, Xane here, you know, for us, I mean, it's true, we need to make money. But I think what we want to see here is that for the app itself, this should be a user base that grows organically. So we're not concerned with, you know, sort of hyper growth or anything like that. We just want to convince people at their own speed, so to speak. Yeah. So they, they should believe in these things, word of mouth and so on and so forth. And then the question is maybe more on that side of the business are in particular younger generations, are they willing to pay two or three euros a month or whatever it might be, you know, to get that kind of service. Now, Netflix has uh, shown us that that's possible, yeah, for example. But this is maybe also something where different cultures have slightly different sort of attitudes. You know, so in the US, I think this was quite easy a, a proposition to make. I mean, I've lived in the States for a long time. I know that kind of thinking, you know, people sort of weigh this against the, the cost of two cups of coffee and they don't think about it anymore, you know, whereas people maybe in Scotland or in Southern Germany, you know, are a bit more cautious about spending money as a sort of a general statement. But for us, it's also this other angle, you know, the, the business clients that we find actually very interesting. I mean, if you think of just stepping sort of a, a, away from the app for, for a second, you know, if you think of what we're offering here is essentially a service that can tap into APIs or existing platforms to retrieve and sort content in a manner, re-ranking it in a manner that is very personalizable for individuals that completely protects the privacy, but also where the whole approach is completely transparent up to you know publishing our uh, software uh, in, in open source repositories. And that I would say 10, 15 years ago was of no interest to most uh, larger companies that have digital content. 
But I think what we're beginning to see is that there's a lot of companies out there now who say, actually, you know, TikTok is maybe one of the dynamic drivers here. They, they see these kinds of new kits on the block, so to speak, and they're getting pretty nervous about, you know, how do we actually bring our information to certainly a younger generation, you know, who's used to these kinds of sort of platforms and mechanisms. And so I think what we have here is we have a core technology that's rooted in those values around privacy that can actually, in principle, be plugged into existing platforms of businesses to give them that kind of service, but also to basically give them the environmental, social governance of reassurance that if they use us, they're actually going to be all right there. And so that's something that we also now understand, and that's actually very interesting for us. So I think you know, we, we wouldn't mind having sort of two irons in the fire, so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, I can't say too much uh, about the actual uh, sort of things that we do in this space, but it's quite fascinating uh, looking at, I mean, maybe an example not related to uh, Xane is in, you know, the, in the BBC, you know, this is a, sort of a well-known publishing house, broadcasting house, and they have something, I think it's called an iPlayer, you know, so where they have uh, sort of uh, stuff that they uh, were broadcasting and other people can download this or watch it uh, at a later time and so on. And, you know, this is a, an example of the sort of platform where the kinds of things that Xane is offering uh, might be might be of interest. This could become a, a virtual uh, circle, you know, where you're, you're developing something that's in a way for end users, giving them freedom of the press, if you like, yeah, so they get a fairly diverse source, uh, not just maybe the one or two national newspapers, and it gives them a lot of control and privacy, but then uh, having similar sort of advantages in more sort of commercially controlled environments, but where those sorts of features, if I want to call them in terms of rights and benefits, would be realized through our core technology. I wonder what it would take for the culture around free access, you might say, to, to change substantially as well, or the idea that information should be free, that it should be liberated. When I, I'm an academic, so when I talk to students about the idea that information should be free, I sometimes get really interested in the idea that they just expect that it should be free mm. and that we should expect to have our data harnessed in and, and used in exchange for free access. What I try to tell them, the historian in me who's interested in the history of ideas, is that the internet didn't emerge in a vacuum. It emerged at a particular time with a particular uh, ideology that I label roughly libertarian, which has the idea that information should be free mm. and that actually the information that they access is not entirely free. While we don't pay to access Facebook, we don't pay to use Google, we certainly pay a toll on the turnpike to get on the internet. Mm. So none of us question or challenge the fact that we're all paying Spectrum Wi-Fi or AT&T $80 a month to get on the internet in the first place. It's just that the turnpike toll booth is on the access to the internet rather than the access to the information. And I'm fascinated by this model and the fact that we kind of have neutralized the ideology behind that model. And the expectation already is that we should pay to get on the internet, not pay to get the information. And I wonder about different models and different ways of thinking about that that might challenge that basic ideology. I, I, and I'm fascinated by the fact that we, that we seem to assume 
that this is the best model. Of course, Netflix, as you mentioned, the New York Times have all provided different subscription models. Would we, for example, be willing to pay $5 a year, $5 a month even to access Facebook? And would we be willing to accept that charge in exchange for having a platform that doesn't use our data? Have you tested out or thought about or gamified or put a business model together that accounts for any of these possibilities? And if so, I'd be super curious to learn what you found. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, quite a sort of an interesting uh, thought experiment, right? I mean, an A and B testing, I guess, for Facebook, yes. (laughs) Uh, Unfortunately, that's very, very hard to do, right? I mean, I think the example within New York Times is maybe worth first going into. I mean, I think there's a difference between just having access to a platform where you can engage in all sorts of ways versus drawing information that isn't just any information, but that's kind of, you know, professionally curated, you know, from a couple of sources and some professional writer has kind of put this together and is sharing that with you. I mean, there are lots of professional new streams, financial ones in particular, that are actually very expensive and where you pay that premium because this information is very valuable and composed in a manner that is uh, sort of highly professional and and insightful. So I think there we have to differentiate a a little bit. But I think, you know, for for something like Facebook or so, I can't quite see that, you know, so that uh, you might want to pay five pounds just to be on a platform. It just seems unnatural, right? But, you know, the the libertarian view of saying information should be free, uh, you were saying, yeah, you pay for the basic infrastructure. So it's kind of a, a bit of a myth. But even more so, it's a myth. I mean, if you take, for example, Gmail as one of the earlier examples of mass internet uh, adoption, you know, you thought of this, oh, it's free. Yeah, but really, as Bruce Schneier, you know, the uh, US security uh, expert had said, Uh, about Gmail, Gmail is not the product, you are the product, you know, the actual user, because what the company is interested in is learning your behavior of sending mail to whom and what's the sort of content and so on and so forth. So that's the actual commercial value that the company has. And by offering it free, that's just priced into, you know, the actual uh, value they get back from, from all these kinds of interactions. And this is something that I think we always have to Remember, you know, when something is offered for free, we have to ask ourselves, okay, why is this free? You know, what's the uh, incentive of that other party to actually make that available? And if it's a public service, you know, where people pay taxes, that's one thing. Yeah. But if it's free because there might be some underbelly there that you would rather not want to know about, then that's a different matter. Yeah. And I think about, you know, sometimes would I want free access to the internet subsidized by the government? I'm not sure I do. Uh, I'm not sure that I want the government deciding whether or not I can get on that turnpike right. or giving the government a power, the power to decide whether I can get on that turnpike or, or not. So that seems to be another possible option that comes with other potential consequences. Yeah, and that ties into education as well, right? I mean, if you think of a nation deciding that everyone has the right of broadband access, for example, that might have interesting consequences for, for example, you know, the economic growth and the uh, skills level of the population and so on, you know, certainly in, in, in today's age. But I think this is getting into a very tricky sort of public policy and political territory, and I don't have very strong views on this either. I wanted to go back to Zane because I was uh, paging through your privacy policy 
And in that policy, you have a very specific discussion of third-party service providers and social media partners who are part, part of your underlying business process. So I understand that Zane itself is deeply protective of privacy and has this kind of mandate and, and this uh, ideal of privacy protection. But I'm wondering about how users of your platform can further protect themselves, not from Zane, but from the misuse of their data by those kinds of third parties while also enjoying the benefits that your platform delivers in terms of data privacy? Yeah, a very valid question, Deb. I'm not sure that the users would probably have a lot of means of protecting themselves further in addition to what we actually offer there, mostly for the reason that, you know, someone who wouldn't be able to dissect our app, you know, as a programmer and sort of uh, amend various sort of bits at the network level. They couldn't really influence things much there. But that's actually why we have taken such great care in thinking about the traffic from our users to our servers and then from our servers to these third parties and then the traffic back. Yeah. So basically anything that would be of a personal nature when it comes to our servers we still receive that, but we don't store that in the first place. Uh, we just discard that. And then what the third parties see is just some abstract package with a certain kind of request of an API where they have no means of relating this to a specific user. So you can kind of say that we act on those aspects, at least, as a trusted broker. Yeah, so I mean, we have privacy built in anyway, but there are maybe some residual points in the technology where someone might feel they could have touch points to personal information. But this is where we carefully design in basically package structures and encryption to make sure that the third parties couldn't sort of inspect that and learn an, an awful lot. I mean, so that said, yeah, but I, I want to sort of make a more general point, which, which also uh, goes beyond uh, Xane as such. I mean, if you want to do privacy preserving products, you have a bit of a dilemma there. Namely, uh, since we do all these wonderful technically shielding things for privacy, we actually don't know what our users are doing. Yeah. So, okay, so maybe you couldn't make any money off it, which we don't want to do anyway, as we've discussed today. Yeah. But we would be interested in some of that simply to improve our product. Yeah. I mean, if I think of a product owner, a product developer, they would like to have certain kinds of analytics you know, so that they maybe understand which features are popular, uh, are there any issues with particular sort of flows through the app and so on. And so there are now also some frameworks that can actually render these kinds of things. So there's a new privacy uh, technology, like uh, privacy preserving analytics and so on, that, that can do this. But this is an inherent tension in, you know, wanting to protect your users as much as you can, but then you have to sort of pay a certain price as a product owner and product developer because you're not having the sort of information you would like to have to improve your product even when you care about privacy and want to protect it at the same time. When when somebody looks through one of these privacy policies or when we think about protections uh, in terms of privacy, what kind of privacy protection should we, should we be mandating or advocating for? Uh, and what about laws and regulations? You know, sometimes I talk to students about consumer protections and technological innovation, and we always swerve between and debate between folks who want to insist that the primary responsibility belongs to individuals to develop literacy, uh, awareness, and self-protection, and those 
folks who want regulation and those folks who want companies to take on ethical processes on their own as part of their business operations don't necessarily want regulations interfering with that and think that um, ethics and ethical guidance should be the purview of the company. Where do you stand on the split between these three? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there are certain use contexts where regulation really has its place. Yeah, completing certain forms with uh, companies or government agencies, you know, where you have an expectation that this information only stays within a certain realm. So I think that's all fine. Certainly, lots of financial information you know, is often re regulated in this kind of way. But I think again, you know, if it comes to uh, sort of more routine daily interactions, I think we have to be careful that we don't over-regulate that sort of domain as well. Yeah? So, I mean, if I think of traditional digital services and products, regulation has a place there. And we just had the cookie uh, discussion a little bit earlier, right? And, and maybe also some of the Baroque kind of things that come out of that, like too many pop-up windows uh, coming up and so on. But you know, if we think of, for example, edge computing, EU has just issued some first guidance on regulation that it might want to do in that sort of space, yeah, uh, around uh, edge computing, edge devices, and so on. And I think that has a place, but it's quite difficult. For example, you know, if you take all kinds of little sensors and fridges and whatnot, yeah, to then understand, okay, what is actually the privacy dimension of that particular device, maybe in a certain context, and how could we certify the security of this thing? Because that's basically something we would have to do to make sure that someone couldn't tap that sort of data. You know, then you might not even know what the chip is or where it was produced that's in this kind of fridge. Yeah. So I think then we're looking at a, a quite a complex landscape, including supply chains and so on. And I think we might then, you know, be faced with basically some kind of super uh, sort of bureaucratic task, you know, of trying to regulate, you know, billions of devices, literally, and their interconnectedness. So I, there, I would probably hesitate, you know, to, to have a somewhat aggressive stance in a regulatory sense, but to maybe have guidelines and more at the manufacturing point, you know, that we make sure that certain things are maybe manufactured in a certain way, but then when they're kind of deployed, to sort of leave them the way they are only when this comes further upstream into sort of servers and so on, then the, the regulation might want to take, take force again. I'm currently teaching a course at Berkeley in the School of Information's Data Science graduate program. So I'm interacting with these students who are deeply interested in questions of privacy and are already in the workforce as data uh, scientists. And I'm curious what you would want these data science students to know and understand or be aware of or do as they pursue careers as data scientists, as workers who are ostensibly going to be making decisions about some of the fundamental issues of privacy and protection that we're discussing. Yeah, I mean, that is a question I have to ask myself also in the spring, because I'm actually going to teach a, a new component in a course on ethics in AI. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, uh, my impression is that a lot of the teaching in this space, certainly on the technical courses, is done through technical means. For example, you know, you might have one or two lectures with a bit of coding exercises around, here's some AI models, here is a metric for trading off accuracy of prediction with bias in the data sets. Yeah, so, so that certainly has an ethical dimension, and it might help if used properly 
to remove some bias in your data set so that the models are more fairer in, in a given use context. But it is ultimately a technical response. You know, so you give people another technical method that they can apply if they choose to do so. I think it's important to complement that also in the teaching with the non-technical aspects of these models. You know, so where will these models be used? In what sort of products or environments will they sit? For how long will they sit there? What will be their user base? Do we know what the users are? Will they evolve? You know, so all this kind of evolutionary aspects and the uncertainties around that, I think people need to get a perspective of, of that landscape so that they can make better judgments about the technology choices that, that, that they're making. If only it might even mean this model is a, you know, supposed to be used in functions of that following nature or in use contexts of that sort of nature. Yeah, so this is like in programming, uh, we often have when we uh, have uh, functions that call each other, you know, in a, in a technical sense, uh, these functions often have what are called preconditions and postconditions, you know, so they're basically saying the input that comes in here needs to meet certain requirements. And then I guarantee you that the output has certain requirements. And so in a way, we have to take these AI models and then have similar sort of uh, ways of thinking about them. You know, they... Uh, the products that have them, these models have to meet certain properties. Otherwise, they're not going to be safe or robust or uh, fair enough uh, to actually be used. I think we have time for one last question. I want to end by returning to a question that I previously asked about profit. I'm interested, Zane, as a company that seems like it's doing good, that is to say it's a company that has a concept of public good and ethical outcomes in mind and at its core. But it's also a company that seems like it can do well, which is to say it can uh, make money, which is what companies are supposed to do, among other things. Can you do good and do well in the space that Zane is in? Can you be a competitive player when companies like Google are pushing on and sometimes pushing over the ethical thresholds of things like privacy and autonomy? If so, how? What's the future of Zane? Yeah, thanks, Deb. I mean, I think I strongly believe, you know, that Xane can be commercially successful. I mean, that's really a belief we share at Xane, and that's why we drive the work also forward, not just because of the, the values that underpin the technology. I'm not sure we would really want to compete head on with companies such as Google, uh, for example, by which I mean, you know, not necessarily that we might not grow to such sort of commercial size, yeah, but that we wouldn't necessarily be interested in operating in the same domain, you know, which is really, in a sense, the domain of gathering data and insights about users so that you can sell this off to third parties and where the actual search experience and so on is just the facilitator for this kind of economic process. I mean, that's maybe a more extreme way of describing it, but it, it sort of contains a core of truth to it. So this is not something where we see ourselves at all, but I could see us as for example, becoming an engine of choice for, for example, businesses who would like to curate and personalize content for a user base, be that within a company or actual clients, in a manner that allows them to do great personalization without having to worry about the governance aspects of data protection, data privacy, and so on. And also just you know being able to use something where people can see, oh, that's actually a transparent and open source kind of effort. 
and you know, it's sort of a bit different from 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 the big players. So there, I think we have a, a real potential to build up a, a sizable market in that space. And on the B two C side, yeah, I mean that is really something that is probably a little bit harder in the sense that it might take longer because here we're swimming a little bit against the the current. You know, people are they grew up with Google, they use TikTok, Facebook, and so on. But I think that might actually change over time. Yeah, so I think time might actually be in our favor also on the on the B two C side. We see investment, uh, which also gives us some confidence that we uh, actually can produce this sort of technology and prove it and then uh, generate our first traction in, in the commercial space to basically move forward in, in that way. Do you think that other companies will follow the model? Do you think that you're starting a trend? I would think so. I mean, with my other hat, you know, at Imperial, I see uh, a lot of innovation take place in deep tech, but where the motivation is actually just to do good. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about the planetary challenges, say, you know, decreasing biodiversity, how can we decrease pollution? How can we decrease uh, carbon emissions? And, you know, these problems manifest themselves already in certain territories in quite dramatic ways. And there's a lot of really, really good talent who have fantastic ideas. I mean, I mentioned water purification as one of them who want to do these sorts of things and where investors are actually quite keen, uh, certainly in the VC space, to, to invest in that. I think also, I mean, if you look around the geopolitics at the moment and so on, you know, it, it might be a good time to also look at a somewhat alternative and fresh way of conceiving businesses and thinking about how they're being run and how they're being monetized. You know, which isn't to say that uh, capitalism you know, is, is passe or anything far from it, because the investment will still be an essential part of this, but just to maybe think about the life cycle of a company and its raison d'etre as you know, being a little bit different from the established uh, ways in which this was usually done. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Deb. Really appreciate uh, the time you've taken. I'm very happy to have engaged in the conversation with you.